With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. Hey, Dan, what's going on? Oh, not too much. Uh, we're all just sort of holding our breath that your voice holds up for, for an hour of podcast conversation today. So I hope you have uh, something to sip on sitting right next to you. I certainly do. And this is episode 189. And my voice during this next hour is brought to you by the Dodgers and from me aggressively booing Manny Machado over two nights at Dodger Stadium. So one night left with a great result. The second night, eh, I was going to say, you're, you're booing accomplished absolutely nothing in last night's game. In fact, I would say that your booing may, in fact, have inspired him. And, and you may want to give some consideration to cheering boisterously next time around. Just throwing it out there. I will never cheer for Johnny Hustle. <laughs> never. You, you, would, you would have better luck getting me to watch every show on broadcast than before you would get me to, to cheer for Johnny Hustle. So help, you, anyway. so help you, Todd. <laughs> I see what you did there, and I love it. Mad respect for you, Dan. Indeed. Uh, yeah, well, we got a lot to get to, so we're going to start where we usually do with headlines. Number one. It's official. Leading off, Netflix will launch its Basic with Ads tier on November 3rd at a cost of $7 a month. That's a lower cost than streaming rivals, including Disney+, Plus, HBO Max, and Hulu. Netflix has also, as part of this effort, signed a deal with Nielsen to measure its digital ad ratings, which will also in turn provide a window into actual viewing data of programs and movies on Netflix for the first time. So yeah, landmark news out of that ad-supported tier. And of course, it is worth noting that not all programming will be available at launch because of what execs described as licensing issues. So Netflix with ads coming in November. Coming very, very soon. Uh, I will definitely not be taking advantage of that because because I avoid ads like I avoid herpes. Um, but yeah, definitely. Like you avoid watching broadcast TV? No, you you watch I, everything. I watch some that. broadcast TV, less than I used to. No, I you know, $7 a month is, is, as you say, it's a lower cost than some of its rivals. Than all of its rivals, actually. There's a great... Uh, uh, tweet that I just uh, a graphic that I just retweeted on on uh, well on Twitter, and it basically looks at the cost of all the different streaming services, including ad tiers. So Netflix at the top, right there. Basic with ads, seven bucks. Basic without ads, ten bucks. Standard without ads, fifteen fifty. And then you got HBO Max with ads, ten bucks. Without ads, fifteen. Hulu's ad tier is eight bucks. Paramount Plus ad tier. With ads, $5. So, yeah, it's almost the cheapest, but not quite. But also, you know, Peacock. Are we really counting Peacock and Paramount Plus in this conversation? I'm not, but you certainly can. And you know, I mean, among the, big, among the big streamers, Netflix will be the cheapest. So 
for for now, Netflix has an endearing ability slash tendency to raise the price on things. So I would assume that that will be $7 a month for a limited time. And probably if that's the kind of thing you want, I would recommend locking yourself into whatever long-term contract you can at that price uh, so that when it suddenly becomes $10 with ads suddenly out of nowhere, you don't feel violated. The, uh, the Nielsen thing is interesting but it's yet another thing that's going to give such a distorted perspective that i don't know what we're really going to accomplish from it like under the best cases we're still going to be having to do really much more math than i have any desire to do because you're going to have to know what percentage of people are on ad tiers and you're going to have to then try figuring out if there's any logic whatsoever to what a someone on an ad tier might watch versus what someone might put on for 15 minutes with no ads. It's one of those things that will give the impression of information without actually necessarily giving information. On the other hand, enough things that give the impression of information, maybe we can feel as if we know things. I I don't know. I'm not, (laughs) I'm not, not hugely pumped yet on this one. (laughs) Yeah. Well, as many journalists like to say, it was my understanding that there was to be no math. So indeed, yeah. we are we are not of the we are not of the profession that requires us to be able to add, subtract, or divide. So, speaking of Netflix, the streaming giant has given a straight to series order for the Western drama The Abandons, which comes from Sons of Anarchy creator Kurt Sutter. The order comes three years after Sutter was fired from Mayans for what he described as being quote an abrasive dick. The Abandons marks his first show outside of FX. Yeah, thoughts on this one, Dan? Look, you know, the the honest truth is that I think that Kurt Sutter is extremely talented. On the other hand, I think that without any question, FX gave him way, way, way too much rope over the years. And I you think- mean Disney or FX? Because I think you said Netflix, right? But no, I just mean over the years, whoever it was that allowed him to start going to 75-minute episodes of Sons of Anarchy, uh, who allowed the bastard executioner to exist, like a lot of different things where realistically there could have been good television shows if someone had at any point felt the desire to say, okay, cut, Kurt, or edit, or whatever. And unfortunately, the reality is that Netflix is not going to be a place where anyone is going to have any ability whatsoever to put down their foot and to have him do anything. So my guess is whatever his inherent excesses are, a Netflix show is only going to steer into those and will not be regulated in any way. So, But at least culturally speaking, this is yet another example of Hollywood being one of the most forgiving industries. So... Yeah, I mean, under those under those circumstances, he kept, you know, he was proudly the the whole abrasive dick thing. He never shied away from being exactly who he was under any circumstances. And there are plenty of businesses in which he would not have gotten as many chances as he already did. But also he's made no bones about his desire to change and his desire to mellow out his personality over the years. And if you choose to buy those rationales, then maybe the last three years have seen him achieve a certain zen, and so who knows? <laughs> sure. Right? I'm just saying, I'm just throwing out hypotheticals, whatever. Right. I think. Yeah, I, I heard zebras do change their stripes, right? 
at his very best, if you look at, say, the second season of Sons of Anarchy, if you looked at the stuff he did on The Shield, he has a very provocative and distinctive voice. And so, yeah. So why not give him an opportunity to make <laughs> to make the, the Netflix version of Yellowstone? Sure. Hey, how happy would Netflix be if that's what this was? And how indifferent would I be after my initial review if that's what this is? So... It's all is what it is. Of of the people in the industry who get countless chances, he's not necessarily the first person I would want to give a countless chance to, but nor necessarily is he the person who I would want to blackball forever. But, you know, everyone, anyone who goes to work on a Kurt Sutter show knows what they're going to work on. You I know what you like. get when you sign up. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. In other news, the long gestating Devil in the White City adaptation has hit yet another speed bump with star Keanu Reeves and director Todd Field both exiting the Hulu series. The drama from exec producer Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio has been in the works for a decade after initially being developed as a movie. Dan, you disappointed in this one? Only a little disappointed, but disappointed in the sense that it sounded intriguing the casting and director combination so so yeah a, a little we'll we'll see who they end up getting to do it but that was a pretty top tier star director pairing so i don't necessarily know where they're going to go from there but yeah they're both actively looking for a new leading man and director so we will see Speaking of Hulu, the Disney back streamer has picked up the drama series Interior Chinatown based on the Charles Yu novel uh, with Jimmy O. Yang set to star and Taika Waititi on board to executive produce and direct. If you have not read the book, it is a very, very fast book to read and it's a pretty good book. So I'm curious to see what they'll do with it. Over at Comedy Central, the Paramount-owned cable network has set December 8th as Trevor Noah's Last Night atop The Daily Show with a reinvented version of the series returning January 17th. Additional details beyond whatever this reinvention is have yet to be revealed, of course. And it is worth noting that sources say Paramount is also going to be reinventing the CBS Late Late Show with James Corden after his departure next year. Lots of reinvention. Should we reinvent, Dan? I don't think we not, need to. Not just yet, no. But, you know, maybe. Uh, Fox has handed out a season two renewal to the Dan Harmon animated series Crepopolis, which hasn't actually premiered, but keeps having complicated press releases involving, like, crypto NFTs. or NFTs or, or something. It's always a good sign when the only things you know about a TV show are that its press releases confuse the hell out of you. So well done on that one. Old. Oh, make God. Me feel old. So yeah. old. on the other hand, you know, that's, that's probably at least partially its intention. And so, yay. Actually, at some point there was a trailer for it. Like I feel like an upfronts or something where I found it a little amusing. So who knows, but it means Dan Harmon. Exactly. Dan Harmon generally tends to be funny speaking, speaking of people with complicated uh, personalities and whatnot, who, who, keep getting to work endlessly, uh, Hollywood is just full of them. <laughs> More on that in a minute. <laughs> Continuing <laughs> along, uh, Hulu has picked up Solar Opposites for a fifth season ahead of its fourth season premiere. Uh, it should be noted, of course, that often early pickups for animated series make sense because of the production time. Uh, you got a Google document uh, that will tell you when our ha we had our conversation with the creators of Solar Opposites way back uh, before its first season premiered. 
I sure as hell do. It's Justin Roiland and Mike McMahon. They joined us in episode 68 from April 30th, 2020. A hundred years ago. We all celebrated my birthday together. Oh. Over on the scripted renewal side, Amazon has picked up Outer Range for a second season, with the sci-fi western becoming the latest series at the streamer to change showrunners. Seriously, look it up. Look at how many Amazon scripted originals, U.S. scripted originals, have changed showrunners. Many of them have. <laughs> I'm confused how Open Range will be able to exist without... Uh, Outer nice Range. Outer Range. Sorry, Open Range is the Kevin Costner western. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to how... Uh, it will be impacted by the cancellation of Night Skies, and if there is any impact to Amazon's greater whole cinematic universe. Um, but yes, this one took a long time to come. I don't really understand. Like, I feel like there might have been people excited or curious when the show ended its first season, and then they kind of forgot it existed. So what do I know? Hey, sometimes people hold news to make you know, to make their announcements at uh, New York Comic Con or other events that uh, is a consumer driven audience. And that doesn't really focus on anything to do with when the show premieres or ends. So sure. Why not? Uh, over at Showtime, the man who fell to Earth will not return for a second season after uh, Alex Kurtzman and Jenny Lamette. Producers and executive producers originally conceived the series as a limited series and ultimately then came up with the pitch for the show to return. I'm a little disappointed because I thought it was a show that had a lot of really good elements. But once once there was never any buzz around Chiwetel Ejiofor for uh, for any acting awards or anything like that, it was it was pretty clear that the buzz on that one just wasn't doing enough for it. But oh, well. Yeah, and they felt the finale, you know, served as a, a good ending. So no need for a season two, apparently. Uh, and sources, of course, note that the decision to not bring back the show has nothing to do with the executive regime change that is impacting Showtime. Of course, we talked last week about David Nevins and his exit from Paramount Global and Showtime now being overseen by Chris McCarthy, who is the king of unscripted and the king of putting scripted out to pasture at Paramount. So I am the king of wishful thinking. There you go. Uh, and I am the queen of losing my voice at Dodger games. Um, heading over to broadcast for a heartbeat here. NBC has picked up six additional episodes of its Quantum Leap update. The show becomes the first rookie series of the season to get any sort of back episode order. These are six episodes here. So congratulations to Quantum Leap. In casting news, Zoe Deschanel has joined the cast of Physical for its third season on Apple. I guess physical is a show that continues to exist. And wrapping up headlines in executive news, former HBO and stars chief and current head of legendary television, Chris Albrecht, has been placed on leave by the company amid new allegations that he disparaged a former executive who took a settlement after he choked her. The interesting piece here is that these new allegations come from a new book that is set to be published in early November, all about HBO, titled It's Not TV, fittingly. The claims, of course, the new information here is what followed this executive settlement because the actual incident, the alleged incident, took place in the summer of 1991. So lots more to come on this, I presume, in the, in the coming weeks as Legendary and Albrecht go head to head here. Yeah, but this is, you know, this is a case of, you know, we talked about Kurt Sutter, but this is also an example that, you know, this is not the first time that Albrecht has, has it, it, 
Albrecht's past has been well documented. There are two examples that are both public from the early 90s of Albrecht having domestic issues, first with this executive and second with his then girlfriend, which was he was actually arrested by police in Las Vegas. The story made obviously the trades and it was picked up on gossip sites like TMZ. So Legendary knew what they were getting when they hired him. But these are, again, claims and allegations that were more than 30 years old. But the news here, the new information here is what the alleged behavior that followed Albrecht after this settlement and after the executive left HBO at the time. So that's what Legendary is, is taking issue with here, allegedly. So, or at least that's a, a, as it appears to me. So that's what I reported. So we we know that that he is on leave of absence from Legendary. And what happens next? Well, we'll stay tuned. But Dan, you know, Albrecht had a very successful run for a very long time with stars until that relationship soured because of infighting with the new regime over, over at Lionsgate after that company was sold. So Dan, I mean, this is kind of a case of, you know, Google who you hire, right? Yeah, it's, as you say, there are the things that are, that are slash were known and acknowledged. And those things were on his resume there, right there on his Wikipedia page. It doesn't require extensive research to find those things out. And sort of the question of why in 2022, just there have to be, there have to be people who don't have that background on their resume who you could hire for top level executive jobs at this particular point in history. That would, that would just be my opinion without, saying anything about any of the new allegations or anything in a book that I haven't read or anything else. There's just there's just no reason why you necessarily need to hire those people. And he's doing just fine, I would assume. So, yeah. <laughs> Up second. Number two. You might have heard a little bit, once again about cuts and layoffs and other things at Warner Brothers Discovery. Uh, this week there was layoffs, there were layoffs rather, in Channing Dungey's Warner Brothers TV. Uh, all These are all parts of cuts under David Zaslav that we have talked about extensively. And this week's news included a lot of news and then some walking back of the news that was sure. only partially walking back of the news, but was reported as walking back of the news. So (laughs) it's a little confusing if you only read headlines on Twitter. But fortunately, our listeners look to you, Leslie, to go behind, beneath, beyond, extraneous to, outside of the To read the story? To read the full story? Sure. And decipher the full story? No, no, no. No, no, I'm teasing you, Dan. What I'm saying is to avoid having to read the whole story. Read the tweet and then come here and I'll read it for you. Or just push play at the top of any THR story and, and some, you know, robo thing will read the story to you. Eh, regardless, click on the it does it for the podcast two story. Did you know that every story that we post for the podcast, it co- you can read the, you can hit push play and hear me writing what what's in the podcast, and then at the end of listening to the po- the story that previews what's in the podcast at the very end, then you could actually listen to the podcast. Uh, there, there are there are many reasons why there are those listen to the robo thing, read your articles, and uh, I am tolerant of those reasons because. You know, it pays our salaries. No, I was just going to say to avoid ableism and whatnot. Uh, That's but, fair. 
But yeah, also so also it, pays our salary. Yeah, it does pay our salary anyway. Click on the links. But seriously, Leslie, break down what did and possibly didn't happen this week at Warner Brothers Television. Well, let's start with the basics. So obviously, this is all part of the larger plan for under Zaslav to find three billion dollars in post merger savings. And we've already seen the layoffs at, at Casey Bloys's HBO and HBO Max divisions. There, remember that time when there were all these rumors like this show's getting canceled and they're not going to do scripted originals and this one's going to go away and they're all going away and oh my God, oh my God. And then it was like nothing. Uh, it wasn't nothing, but you know, pouring, you know, pouring one out for the, those affected. But it wound, it was not nearly the alarmist stuff that many people thought it would be. So this time the rounds are hitting Channing Dungey's Warner Brothers Television Group. So in terms of overall numbers, the tally total is 125 positions. And that sounds terrible, right? Because that's 26% of the workforce. But the one thing that Dungy did first is they she looked at and said that the studio has 43 vacant positions representing 7%. We're not going to fill those. We're trying to save heads here. So they've, they just eliminated those positions. And then the and the total tally of, of employees affected, I'm told, is 82. So that's actually 19%. But in, to in total, it's 125% or 26% of the overall workforce. So sources are saying that this is a largely low and mid-level staffers, although that does include people who have been there for a considerably long time. Uh, the highest ranking executive to leave is um, Brooke Carson, and she is not impacted by the layoffs. She chose to leave. This is a conversation. She is basically the head of Warner Horizon. If you watch The Bachelor, she has overseen that entire franchise during her decades-long run at the studio. She's leaving to, to start a next chapter. She's basically ready to run a, an unscripted division, but she was the number two under Mike Darnell, who will, of course, stay at Warner's. So there's a lot of consolidation going on. Again, I'm talking about consolidation, so this is your cue to drink. Uh, but you're going to see a lot of the back end things, uh, the businesses be consolidated. So there's not, they're not like doing away with different, you know, a lot of these, these key divisions. Instead, they're going to, they're going to right size the company. So what this means is you're going to see a lot of like the back end stuff. So business affairs, finance, physical production, those are all things that are going to be consolidated into one larger unit. So the first thing that happens whenever there's a big merger like this is you eliminate redundant positions. So that's continuing to happen at every different division. So we saw HBO, HBO Max. Now this time it's at Warner uh, Warner Brothers TV. Uh, this morning I wrote up that Cartoon Network, two senior mar uh, marketing executives were, were leaving one, you know, positioned it as this was her decision, but there's no way people leave of their own volition for, you know, after only two years at a company. Another one was a 22-year marketing veteran. Uh, so those people are out as, as part of this overall thing, you know, where you're looking at different facets of the business. So one, the biggest piece of this, now that I've completely bored you to tears with all the math, is Dungy's decision as part of these cost-cutting moves to disband stage 13 which was created in 2017 to focus on short form digital content. So if you watched, uh, there was a show on Netflix called Special with Ryan O'Connell. It was exec produced by Jim Parsons. These, I think the first season were like 15 minute episodes. Second season, they expanded after it got a couple of Emmy nominations, expanded it to 30 minute episodes. But that was the show that was produced by Stage 13. A big focus of that, in addition to being digital short form, was diversity and inclusion. 
So a lot of people are upset about that. The second piece of this is that Warner Brothers TV Group has decided after the current workshop, after the 22-23 season is, is over, its current writer's workshop and director's workshops are no more. So that's what really triggered the internet. So a lot of the writer, uh, TV writer community, because that's a way to get writers a foot in the door. It's a very successful program that's been around for a long time. It opens the door for new directors and for new writers. And then there is a financial incentive that was part of the program where a show was able to staff someone who was a graduate of this program and have their salary not come from the show's budget, but rather the workshop and the studio pays that that writer's salary. So there was an incentive to hire people who graduated from this program to give them their first job. So this is it was a gateway to getting new voices into writer's rooms or into the directing chair. And those programs are no more. The internet blew up immediately after the news broke. And the response was obviously a lot of people were very, very upset. So a day later in what I call a damage control mode, Warner Brothers Discovery put out a, a very confusing press release that if you printed it verbatim, as some websites did, it sounds like, you know what? These programs aren't going anywhere. Don't worry. Don't worry. They're, they're not going anywhere. That's garbage. The writers and directors workshops at Warner Brothers Television Group are ending, period. New sentence. However, Warner Brothers Discovery, the parent company of Warner Brothers TV Group, is going to launch some new initiatives that focus on underrepresented communities that falls under their diversity, equity, and inclusion label. So basically what they're saying is the executives that, that the studio, that Warner Brothers Television, the studio group, paid for as part of these two programs, the writers and directors workshops, are no longer going to come from the Warner Brothers TV group budget. Instead, the, the larger company, Warner Brothers Discovery, is going to create and fund new programs that also targets, that's inspired by these writer and director programs. Except they're not going to pay the salaries of the people who go through them. If, if they are similar, I don't even know. There's no details. They said that these programs are long in the works. Don't worry. We got it under control. It's all going to be overseen by our DEI executives. And we have this great new team that, you know, our great colleague, Rebecca Sun reported. She interviewed the head of the new DEI initiative over at, at Warner Brothers Discovery, you know, but to me, this sounds like lip service, right? It's like, oh shit, we did not estimate, we did not anticipate the writer community, the creative community on which we make billions and billions of dollars to be so upset that we're ending these programs that give a voice to the underrepresented and people who are trying to get their, their foot in the door. So let's say, you know what, instead we're going to pay for it out of this, you know, this other corner of the, of the industry is going to pay for, or this other corner of the company is going to pay for these same services, except they're not going to be the same services. They're going to be, we don't know what they're going to be, but don't worry. You know, we're still committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. We don't, we don't worry. You know, it's like, come on, guys. You know, leave those programs alone. If you, if you want to just shift the programs under the DEI label, don't do away with existing programs and infrastructure. You know, it, it, it's kind of preposterous if you ask me. So this is all part of, of course, like I said, David Zaslav's efforts to save $3 billion in cost savings across the newly merged company. In terms of the Warner Brothers TV layoffs, those have hit all three main divisions of the studio equally. So the main focus I've, I have here is on the unscripted side, lesser so on the scripted side, and then they are 
there is some there were some some uh, staff redundancies in terms of the animation division. So lots of people kind of merging those groups into smaller, tighter units across the company. And you know, you're looking at you know HBO Max and HBO are getting out of the kids animation business, so it doesn't really make sense to have you know execs on that side when you've got a Cartoon Network Studios over here, and then you've got three different animation labels, and you've got three or four different unscripted labels. And we talk, anytime we talk about Warner Brothers Discovery, you have to talk about how much unscripted content and all of the executives that you have on the Discovery side that you're inheriting as part of this deal. So the idea of keeping these big, big unscripted studios and having them each have their own business affairs and finance and casting and everything else, it's like, like I said, eliminating redundancies is the first Thing that anyone does after a big merger like this. So, Dan, did I make sense of this? What, what questions do you have for me? I don't know that I have questions for you. I have questions for uh, whoever is, I don't know, at this point running the Warner Brothers PR machine and the way that the news is coming out on any of this. Just the, the inevitability that every piece of news coming out of Warner Brothers Discovery is initially going to be bungled in its first version is a thing that someone should probably be concerned about. The fact that the initial reaction to absolutely everything coming out of their company is horror and that they're having to backtrack on absolutely everything, whether or not it's a literal backtracking or in this case, exactly what you just said involving the diversity equity programs, where it's kind of either a legitimate backtracking or a lip service backtracking. I don't think we, I don't think we know a lot of the things that I saw commentary on several people pointed out that the DGA, the most recent DGA uh, deal requires a program like that. So there could not have been a circumstance in which Warner brothers was simply allowed to eliminate it. So now they have something that fills the place that is required by the DGA deal. So let's not, you know, pat them on the back too aggressively. They're doing a thing that otherwise the guilds were going to burn them down on. Uh, No, look, this is, again, it comes down to you being the business practical realist and me being the art-loving child and just simply stepping back and going, it really does feel like so many of these things are hitting and hurting the people without the power in the industry the most. It's hurting the young writers. It's hurting writers of color. It's hurting animated writers who, for whatever reason, uh, simply don't have the the clout. And and so and so that's where my concern keeps being is when is when I see a program like the feeder programs, which could not possibly have cost as much as say your typical episode of Westworld getting cut. I get really, really twitchy because, well, I get twitchy on a practical level and I get twitchy on an optical level, which is why do these things keep from a point of optics impacting the same groups of people over and over again? Part of the answer that anyone will tell me is if those things aren't making money, then David Zasloff doesn't care about them and it's a business. And that's totally that's 
what his job is, I guess, you know, and it's, it's not my job to think that what he's doing is a wonderfully, is a wonderful thing from a perspective of creating great art. Um, I, I do not feel as if this is in any way beneficial to the creative community that he is theoretically a part of, but if he views himself as being part of the business community and the creative stuff is just kind of a thing that feeds into that, then what am I supposed to say? It's, you know, this is, this is not about the thing that I value about Warner Brothers and their programming and the opportunities they allow. Uh, but yes, we keep having this conversation over and over again, and we keep having this conversation over and over again. <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel when I ever talk about consolidation, Dan. So I sound like a broken record, albeit one with a scratchy voice today, though. Number three. Up third, let's go to the mailbag. A reminder, if you have questions that you would like to hear Dan and I discuss on the podcast, drop us an email at TV's Top 5, that's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Up first, Akil asks, do you think Netflix will try to extend Ryan Murphy's deal now that he has delivered them a monster, ha, monster, colon, Jeffrey Dahmer, the Jeffrey Dahmer story, Dahmer, colon, whatever, he's referring to. Anyway, yes, now that he has delivered an actual genuine monster hit, do you think that will uh, lead Netflix to try to extend his deal? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe. I don't know. I mean, ultimately, I, I can't imagine Netflix execs were happy when Ryan Murphy you know, set two new shows in the American Stories franchise for FX and Disney and then revived Feud for another season. So he's obviously going to be spending a lot of time working on projects that are not for Netflix. So how do you respond when, when the guy that you gave $300 million to is going to do more of the biggest franchises that he has for Disney? And those shows are not part of the American Horror Story franchise that Netflix has a deal to stream. So these are basically going to be new shows that are going to probably wind up streaming exclusively on Hulu. So, yeah, I don't know that I would be in any kind of a hurry, especially looking at the way that Netflix has been performing this year. You know, they're launching an ad-supported tier because they need the revenue. So are they going to be in a hurry to spend another $300 million or more to keep Ryan Murphy working for Disney? I'm not an, a math expert, Dan, but that doesn't sound like a good use of money. I like this is now the third time that our failure or inability to do no math, math has come up. Uh, I, no it's, math. Look, again, it's it's sort of, there's there's no question that the Jeffrey Dahmer thing, whatever its title is, has been incredibly successful for Netflix. Once again, this is another And they one anticipated those, that this was going to be the big hit that, that you know, that he was going to deliver for them. They anticipated, but on the other hand, they still, somebody at Netflix had to be concerned about the way that Ryan insisted that they roll out that series. The the we're going to announce it a week before, put out two trailers, give no screeners to critics. Someone had to wonder if it was going to break through. And guess what? It did. So, yay. And then Wait, so you're saying true crime shows are really successful, Dan? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Uh but so emboldened by that, they decided to do the same thing this week basically with Ryan Murphy's latest, uh The Watcher, and I have to be honest, and it has to be said that this is based on exactly one and a half days of anecdotal data slash watching my Twitter feed and watching Twitter. I have no sense that anybody is talking about this new show. 
I keep forgetting that it's a Ryan Murphy show. It, I yeah. So so that to me, uh, like I don't know. Will people discover it? Will people find it? Will it? Uh, whatever. I you know, it's entirely possible. I definitely don't want to rule out that it's a thing that could become a word of mouth sensation. But if at the end of the day you have two shows that you're attempting to do the same thing with, and one of them is a huge hit. And if the other one is, let's just say less of a hit hypothetically, but again, it could be whatever. I've watched exactly 45 minutes of it. Our colleague Angie is currently in the process of, of marathoning her way through it. I, you know, the, the 45 minutes I've watched, I thought was actually a little bit spooky and, and actually really, really funny. Uh, I thought particularly there are scenes with Richard Kind and Margot Martindale as, as the neighbors to the family moving into this ridiculous, crazy house. Uh, I thought those were kind of genuinely hilarious. Uh, and I think they were probably intended to be hilarious. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. But hey, at least the Dahmer thing, absolutely, totally a hit. Up next, Cameron re requests, Dan, he wants to hear your thoughts on the final season of Dairy Girls, especially the quote-unquote bumper finale. Dan, take it away. Indeed. Uh, so I'm happy to have the chance to talk about it. I, I fully intended to uh, meet out episodes of Dairy Girls over a period as long as humanly possible, uh, knowing that there will be no more of it. It, it. I managed to make the last seven episodes last four days. So I feel a little bit proud of that, I suppose. Uh, anyway, Dairy Girls is such a good show. I, I, I think that if people don't know Dairy Girls, haven't watched Dairy Girls, you've got a treat ahead of you. There are only 19 episodes and it goes as fast as your ability to play the episodes and to, I don't know, read the uh, the subtitles, because inevitably it's bound to be a show that will require people to put on close captioning. Uh, the third season, I thought, was really very good. And it, and in its best moments, I thought it was absolutely, you know, peak Dairy Girls. I thought there were a lot of uh, quite wonderful scenes. I thought that the reunion episode, I thought it was the best of the episodes to feature the, the kids' parents. I, I have never been the hugest fan of those characters, uh, but I really liked how they were used in that episode. Um, the sixth episode, which was the finale, but then the uh, whatever, um, the second part, <laughs> the, the special or bumper episode, the sixth episode, I was sort of perplexed by how they decided to end it. I, I was, I was like, wait, was that a thing that this show has been building to at any point? And why was that a thing that was totally fitting with the show? On the other hand, I thought that the the bumper finale, I thought it was, for the most part, really excellent. There's a, there, there's a big name guest star at the very end who is a distraction, but also I understand how it ties the whole series together. It goes back to the premiere, and so that's of value. And the other guest, the other big guest star who appears in the finale and appeared also, I believe, in the premiere was very amusing uh, throughout the show. But no, really, the show continues to thrive because the cast is so wonderful. And I'm going to be very curious to see how a lot of them 
are used going forward because part of the part of the undertone slash gimmick of the show has always been that it was uh, a show that featured a bunch of actors who were in their mid 20s and at this point now in their 30s playing high school students and that was almost part of the joke but it also means that you have a lot of actors who are thought of in the industry as being conspicuously younger than they actually are and then you have to figure out how to use them so i will be very interested to see how Saoirse Monica Jackson, who I think has been brilliant on this show. I, th I think it is such a great example of how to be broadly funny in a way that is both cartoonish and grounded. Like, I, I think this is such a good comic performance she's giving. Like, you talk about how people cry ugly. She is so willing to be funny ugly. And I think it's it's just a great performance. I think she's wonderful. We've already at least seen uh, Nicola Coughlin uh, on uh, Bridgerton. So, you know, you at least know what the next stage of her career is. But but Saoirse Monica Jackson, I'm very curious on. Uh, I'm curious when we're going to see, you know, Jamie Lee O'Donnell. I don't know if we're going to see her in, I mean, she's very funny, so hopefully they will. Will we see the actor who plays James in the future? I, I hope so, because they're all funny, but who knows? You you just never know with high school set shows and high school set shows where the acting was done by actors in their mid-20s. But I thought there were a lot of great moments this season. I laughed a lot. Absolutely, the bumper finale. I, I totally got emotional watching it. I, I got teary and in, in the places they wanted me to uh really and truly this is this is one of my favorite shows and in a perfect world there would have been six random episodes of dairy girls popping up every year and a half on my tv and i would have been absolutely happy to have those six episodes every year unfortunately tisn't going to happen but yeah so those are my thoughts on on the dairy girls finale i liked it a lot uh though I thought the ending of the sixth episode was a little weird. But because I was able to just move directly into the bumper finale, it didn't bother me much. Let's see. Up next, AJ writes, With Ellen Pompeo's reduced role, is Grey's Anatomy trying to drag the show until it's landmark season 20 and then probably spin-offing it into a spin-off like Roseanne slash The Connors? Or do they keep going if Ellen completely leaves? Uh, that's a great question. Um... I think the big thing that's happening this year is Ellen's contract is up. She is often for years and years and years made, you know, made it very public that she's open to seeing what's next. And now this year she's reduced her role. I think she's going to be in eight episodes, including the season finale in May. And that's going to afford her time to do another show for Disney, which is the Hulu limited series that we've talked about before. And She's, you know, in doing interviews around, you know, around this, you know, she said it, like, I think it was a D23 that she will always be part of Grey's Anatomy. She's going to do the voiceover work for every all the episodes this season or as much as, as the, the episodes are going to dictate hearing from her, as you know, or as many Grey's Anatomy fans know, not she doesn't do the voiceover in every episode. Sometimes they hand that off based on the, the storylines that they're looking at. But yeah, I think this is what we're, you're seeing where they've brought in a new crop of, of interns as the show has continued to do over the, the de many decades, multiple decades, two decades. Anyway, over its, you know, 18 plus season run. This time the interns are actually decent casts. They spent, they spent a little money to bring in bigger names, uh, with b bigger followings because yeah, they are trying to reinvent the show. 
And it makes sense that the way that they're trying to do it. They're, they're you know, they're, they're pulling some of the storylines from the actual pilot, right? Like when Meredith stepped, slept with Derek, you have a very similar storyline this season. But in terms of its future, Grey's Anatomy is a multi-billion dollar asset that airs across the globe and makes a shit ton of money for Disney. It would behoove everyone involved, Shonda, Disney, the cast, Ellen, et cetera, if the show were to keep going. And if you can do that with Ellen having a reduced role, great. And if you can do that with Ellen only doing voiceover, great. And if you can do that without Ellen, even better, because now the show actually becomes affordable for them to make because she is the highest paid actress on a broadcast drama by a long shot, especially in this day and age when you're when you're seeing bigger actors not do broadcast. So do they keep going if Ellen leaves? You know, Shonda has always said that the show will go on as long as Ellen wants to do it. And now you're actually kind of seeing that put to, to the test. So will Ellen sign a new deal? Will she be back as a series regular after she films her Hulu limited series? Those are all great questions. And it depends on the bottom line, because as I say all the time, this is a business. And if they can afford to pay her and she wants to do it, she'll come back and the show will continue. But now they're basically cracking the door open a little bit to see if viewers respond well to the reinvented Grey's Anatomy and a lot of these new characters. I mean, Harry Shum Jr. is in there, the, the woman from Inventing Anna, who, you know, who is terrific in there as uh, the, the hotel staffer. Like, there, you know, there's a lot of great casting that they, they brought in. So, yeah, I think if, if people respond to that new cast, I could see that show going on without Ellen or with it, with Ellen in a limited role or Ellen continuing to do voiceover. She's always going to be an executive producer on the show. She will never not be a part of it. The bigger question will be is how much her on, on screen future will be. So, and again, those questions rest with Disney and Ellen and maybe Shonda a little bit. So. Yeah, and definitely showrunner Krista Vernoff. But, you know, she's been, Vernoff has been, and she's been on the podcast before, talking about how she's approached every season. Sometimes she doesn't know if the season's going to be a series finale or a season finale. And sometimes she has to prep two different endings. Or sometimes you have to leave it open and hope for the best. So that's definitely the case here. So lots to stay tuned for, but these things have a way of working out. And I don't think that ABC or Disney or Shonda or Ellen or anyone currently involved with the show would be filming a final season and not let people know about that because that's a marketing opportunity. That is a golden opportunity to, to make money on advertising and to really bring old viewers, maybe like me, back to the show because I fell off a couple seasons ago. So after the, after the COVID season, which I thought was fantastic, I think I stopped watching after that. So up next, Akil has another question and his second question is for you, Dan. Why are TV critics only ever talking about Abbott Elementary, which is already a hit, when there are also other good network sitcoms from last season, like American Auto, Welcome to Flatch, and Grand Crew, all of which could use a boost? I think it's a, a fair question, and I, you know, I feel like I tried last spring to emphasize that there really was a, a surprisingly good crop of new broadcast comedies last year, and I, I don't think there's any question that there was that that the broadcast comedy crop last year was significantly better than the broadcast drama crop, and I am not even sure what broadcast dramas premiered last year. Uh, Abbott Elementary just kind of ended up being the right show at the right time for people to talk about it. Keep in mind, it was a mid-season show, so for the fall 
it, we, you know, we, t- we talked about Wonder Years. Uh, lots of people talked a lot about Ghosts, which is another new show from last year that was a, a bonafide hit uh, and is doing as well or better in its second season. So, but again, those go back to the shows that need people to talk about them versus shows that don't need people to talk about them. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I do, um, I make every other week appearances on a podcast with my buddy, uh, Nick DeGilio, who's a radio guy out of Chicago. And he is the only human being I know who's watching welcome to flash, but he, mentions that he's watching Welcome to Flash every single time we talk. Uh, So he's doing his best to get the word out about that one. Um, American Auto is a show that I really like, and Grand Crew is a show I really like. I think that what I would say is that, to its total credit, um, (sighs) Abbott Elementary, when it premiered, was basically the show that it is now. Like, do I feel like they've got, they've tightened it up and that they've, found the voices and that they like to, you know, they found the actors they want to give more material to and all of that. Of course they have, obviously, but it, it really did start off as very, very close to the show qualitatively that it is right now. And I think that American auto and grand crew are both significantly more uneven shows. I think that they both have great ensemble casts. I think they both have times where they're really, really hilarious and doing great things. But I also think that there are times that they feel like they had all of the the funny bits sanded off to be uh, to be on broadcast, and that's just how it goes. But no, ab- absolutely, uh, last year was a very good year for broadcast comedies, and uh, American Auto and Grand Crew, I definitely think, are worthy of people's considerations and people checking them out. And uh, uh, my buddy Nick would want me to say that Welcome to Flatch is also, and it added Jamie Presley this season, so... Yay, if that's an incentive. So, I mean, it's a it's a fine question, and there's there's no real reason the answer I would give is maybe based on varying degrees of consistency and and how quickly you arrive on the scene fully formed versus how much it requires people to go, okay, if you watch four or five episodes, you'll get the the humor of it, you'll get whatever. So so I think that's I think that's my answer. But definitely those are those are shows that are worth watching as well. So anyway, uh, a reminder again that if you have questions for future mailbags, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral 5, at thr.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number four. Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segments. 
Our guest this week is Clea Duval, who has carved out an extremely successful acting career as sardonic big screen scene stealer in everything from The Faculty to She's All That to The Iconic, But I'm a Cheerleader, and then on TV shows, ranging from the lead in Carnival to supporting work in everything from Better Call Saul to Veep to Handmaid's Tale. She, of course, though, made her feature writing-directing debut on 2016's The Intervention and then rewrote the rules for the holiday rom-com with 2020's Happiest Season. She's wearing all sorts of hats on the new freebie half-hour high school based on the memoir by Tegan and Sarah. She is co-writer, co-creator, co-showrunner, director of many of the first season episodes, etc. Welcome to the podcast, Clea. Thank you for having me. So getting started, you know, you've worked with Tegan and Sarah for a long time before high school. When did you first become aware of their music and how did you come to meet and begin collaborating with them? Um, well, I I was not familiar with their music when I met them. Um, I had friends who were going to see a concert of theirs in Pomona and they asked me if I wanted to go and I tagged along and that was my first exposure to them, um, to their music. And then I went backstage and we... I met them there and then we just kind of kept finding ourselves in the same circles and became friends. Such, such is the life of uh, a Southern California professional yeah. <laughs> right? in, this com- in our, yeah. in our community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. And then we, uh, the first thing that we did together, um, they asked me to direct uh, these uh, promo videos for them, for their album, when their album Heartthrob was coming out. And that was our that was our first time working together in that capacity. And then um, I directed a music video for them. Sarah did the score for my first movie. They wrote a song for that. They wrote a song for Happiest Season. Um, I think that's all of our collaborations. <laughs> yeah. Well, given that you'd had all those interactions when uh, High School was released, their memoir in, in 2019, had they already mm-hmm. leaked it to you early or, or did you have to get like a normal person? Of course not. No, normal, not like a normal person. No, they sent me. <laughs> um, they sent me an early copy of their book, and I just devoured it. I read it in a day, and immediately could see it as a show. And I called Tegan, and I said, "You know, don't just give the rights to anybody. Let me adapt this book." You know, and then they talked about it, and. <laughs> We moved forward. <laughs> but they actually had to have a little consultation amongst themselves as to whether or not they wanted to give it to you. They didn't just say, oh, by all For means, sure. it's all yours. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, of course. Well, I mean, it, it makes sense. You know, they had just, they had just, the book hadn't even come out yet. They had spent so much time writing it and worked so hard on it that then, you know, I don't, they were nowhere near even thinking about it becoming anything else yet. You know, it was still very early stages. And then, you know, obviously we're all very close friends and our friendship is really important. So it was also like deciding, is this the best thing to do for our friendship and all of that? It was, we were trying to be very grown up about the whole thing. Absolutely. But it also is important that a member of the, of the LGBTQ community be involved in adapting something that's as personal as what they, they have in, in high school. So, you know, was that part of the conversation? It's like, obviously when you're calling them and saying, don't give these rights away, like there's very few LGBTQ writer, director, producers, actresses out there who can adapt this material, let alone ones that they were already had a, a really a working relationship with as well as a friendship with. Yeah, I mean, I think that I don't know if they had ever that they had any ideas of who they would want to do 
this, but I imagine, yes, a, another queer person would be um, a must. They couldn't have, like, J.J. Abrams adopting this would be a little bit of a weird fit. <laughs> I mean, he's amazing, but... We know what you're saying, don't worry. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, going taking a step back for a second, but, you know, happiest wait, season... Wait, reset, but wait, wait. I was that was no slam at J.J. Abrams <laughs> no, in not any way because I love J.J. Abrams and so I would never want anything to come off like I would say something bad about J.J. Abrams. That's not it. It's just that he wasn't a queer teenage girl in the '90s like I was. Is all I'm saying. Right. That Absolutely. is a that is a non controversial statement that I okay. think you can okay. be okay with saying. Okay. Great. 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 <laughs> yes. You know, happy, happiest season broke ground as the first holiday rom com featuring a lesbian couple at the center. High school to me, feels equally groundbreaking in a similar way in that it, it showcases, as you said, growing up queer, especially in the 90s. W you know, for you, what would having a show like this have, have meant to you at that age? I mean, it would have answered a lot of the questions that I had um, that I only asked myself. Um, you know, it it would have been huge, you know, because when, when I was growing up, I didn't have, there was no one I could really look to. It was like, I had like Joe from The Facts of Life who I was just like, you know, getting irrationally angry when she had a boyfriend, you know. <laughs> you and me both, but my friend. Really, you and, you and me both. <laughs> like, she didn't really love Eddie. Like, what is that no. guy? He's just coming. No, she loved Blair. What the hell? Yeah, she loved Blair. Blair and Joe were supposed to be together. Um, but yeah, it was like, it, all I had was sort of like wishful thinking. And But to have characters who I could identify with would have, you know, it would have been, you know, make me feel less alone, answer questions I had about myself. You know, it would have been would have been big. Yeah. For me, I the first, you know, representation that I remember seeing of myself on screen was when Ellen came out on her um yeah. on her sitcom. Yeah. What was that for you? Yeah, I had the same the same thing. I was a huge fan of her stand-up comedy. And so but but didn't even think that she was because I didn't know anybody who was gay when I was growing up. Um so it didn't really occur to me that pe that people were that being gay was even a real thing. Um and then when she came out on her show, I was like, oh, okay, that's what that's what that is. And maybe that is what I am so drawn to. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about the current state of LGBTQ representation in, in film and television? I mean, you know, obviously Happiest Season was groundbreaking, but it also like that just came out. What was that? Two years ago? Like two years ago. Yeah. Why did it take so long to get there? And you know, from your point of view, what shows or movies are getting it right? You know, what happened with Bros, for example, the Billy Eichner rom-com mm -hmm. feature? You know, I mean, mm -hmm. it, it feels like there's a, a real void in our industry, especially on the TV side after a show like mm -hmm. Pose ended. So that's like 17 questions all in one. But. Yeah, I mean, I do feel like it, I do feel like there is way more represent, representation there was now versus when I started, you know, because I remember, you know, when making... But I'm a cheerleader, for example, was such a big deal. And it was a huge conversation of like, should you do this? Should you not do this? There was no part. There was no world where I wasn't going to do it. But with my representatives, there was a little bit of like, uh, I don't know if you should be doing this, you know, and then there were other, you know, every so often other queer things would pop up that would come to me. And I didn't do them because I was closeted at the time and I didn't want people to catch on, even though I don't know who I was fooling. Um but, uh, you know, I do think it's gotten much better. And I think the stigma of playing gay characters for actors is not, you know, the same thing. If if anything, it's like 
you know, people want gay character, gay people to play gay characters. You know, there's no like, it, it was just not like that. It's changed so much. And that's just like my perspective as an actor and like the, the projects that I was seeing, um, it does feel like there, there's a lot more there. What were some of the projects you passed on? I'm just curious. I don't want to say. I don't want to say. That's fair. Um, but in, in, in terms of, you know, high school, what was the process like shopping this series? I mean, obviously, we've come a long way from But I'm a Cheerleader, which, by the way, <clears throat> fantastic. Absolutely loved that movie and was such a big part of my own coming out, as was Ellen and everything else. But, <clears throat> you know, were there obstacles in, in, in getting a show like this? on the air, especially at a time with our country so divided and, you know, in terms of our industry, focus is really on on these big, broad programs. And yeah. we're starting to see shows that focus on underrepresented communities like Gordita Chronicles, obviously, which focus on the Latinx community. Those are struggling to find an audience and, and to cut through, let alone to make it to a second season. Mm -hmm. I mean, we we when we took it out, there were there were a lot of people who were interested in it. Um, and we, you know, we ultimately went with Freebie, who was IMDb at the time, because they really, you know, they really wanted us to make the show we wanted to make. And they were very supportive of of that. And it is, you know, we, we like, I really didn't want to, like, sensationalize the story or try to, like, make it, you know, big or more explosive or more dramatic. Like, I really wanted to stay true to, you know, the intimacy of Tegan and Sarah's story. And, um, and they want, you know they they were game to let us do that but it, there was not you know like the lgbtq aspects of it didn't feel like a deterrent for anybody it was more you know like the the yeah were you told no at any stop along the road like did people not want the show mm -hmm. yeah there were there were some places that passed but it, it was not about um it was not about the lgbtq aspect of it it was more you know, oh, we have something similar or that kind of thing, or we want something that is. Yeah, we are. We already have the gay show, which you know we've heard before. I think it was it was more teen. It was more we have a teen show, or we're doing this with our teens. Like it never it never felt like that. That LGBTQ aspect of the story was what the reason that places didn't want it. So you get the book, and you and the book, you know, resonates with you, and you think, okay, I want to adapt this. In your mind, what was the journey you took on figuring out the shape that it was going to take? You know, TV, not a movie, half hour, not an hour. How did you find what kind of story this was? Well, you know, in I, as someone who knows Tegan and Sarah, I also know the people in their lives and I know how expansive their world is. And I was really, I really loved the format of their book, how they alternate perspectives when they're writing and I really wanted to bring that into the show. And in doing that, I knew that I would be able to expand the characters around them. And it just felt like the their world was so much bigger than um, what they were able to focus on in the in their memoir, because it's their memoir. They're not going to write about anybody else, you know. So the show could do things that the book could not. And it just felt like a television show would be the best format to explore all the, you know, Tegan and Sarah and their journey to becoming musicians, their coming out journeys, and then also focus on the people around them. But at the same time, every episode has the feeling of of almost a 25-minute indie-type movie. Uh, how hard was it to find the tone that you wanted the series to have? It was really, I think, because I 
had written the first two episodes already. And because I knew that I was directing them, it was like I had that in my mind already. Like the, it was almost like I had like, like figured out the formula and then, you know, working on the, working on the visual to building the visual world with the DP and the production designer. Like we, you know, we really wanted it to have like a very classic feel and, you know, not, not, identify the period based on all the things that were there, but rather than what wasn't there so that when you're watching the show, it doesn't feel like this nostalgia porn where we're like winking at the audience being like, remember this thing? Isn't that crazy? The nineties were nuts. Like it really just, we really wanted it to feel like grounded and real. And um, I think all of those things really contributed to creating the look. And then once we got into the edit, it was working with the editors um, a lot to get, the pace down it's like to help them understand what you know how to put it all together basically and like we uh rod one of our editors rod he really got it and then we we worked a lot together to to um just like we we just kept kind of nail nailing down what exactly the pace of things and exactly the um how to deal with the perspectives and you know there were a lot of things that we learned as we started started filming the dp and i just in terms of like focus like how to play with focus and how to really ground the audience in the um someone's perspective like we shot things very specifically when based on whose perspective we were in and we really like stuck to that um and didn't break the rules, even though sometimes you want to, because you're like, oh, it'd be so much easier if we did this. And it's like, yes, but then you're breaking the rules of the show and it's episode one. And if you're already breaking the rules, what are you doing? You know? So it was a lot of, like, there was a lot of restraint in, in the process of um, the, the filming the show and then making sure that that was coming across in the edit. Such a long winded answer, but. (laughs) Well, there's, there's a lot of serious stuff here. There's also a lot of very recognizable, anxious humor to it. And, and you mentioned that you didn't want it to be nostalgia porn, but you wanted it to be grounded in a period. And, and so part of what I kept thinking of watching this was, was freaks and geeks, which I assume you will take as a, as a compliment. Did you use that at all as a touchstone? What were other touchstones for you? I mean, I didn't, I, I loved Freaks and Geeks and I watched it years and years ago, but I actually did not go back to it. And I didn't, you know, there were some people who were talking about Most So-Called Life, which was a show that I had, I have never seen. Um, what? <laughs> I know. And everybody has that same reaction. Tegan and Sarah reference it constantly. And then I think are now just irritated that I have not still haven't seen it, but I didn't want to be, I really wanted the show to have, to be its own world, to have its own life. And I didn't want to be too influenced by, you know, other, other things, you know, cause I do, I think that like, you can't help it if you see something and you're like, Oh, well we could do this like this. And, but it's like, no, no, no. I want it to really be its own thing. So now when it comes to casting, the lore here is that Tegan and Sarah discovered uh, your stars, Rayleigh and Season, on TikTok themselves. What was the timeline of that discovery and the existence of this show and somebody realizing that these were actually the people for the show, et cetera? Well, uh, we had been casting for a while and had seen some really wonderful twins, but they just didn't feel like they really captured the essence of Tegan and Sarah. Um, and then one day... 
Tegan was just scrolling on TikTok. And I guess how TikTok works is they just show you things, is what my understanding. Um, so Rayleigh just appeared, Rayleigh, who plays Tegan, just appeared in Tegan's feed. And she watched her video and then she watched another video and saw that she had a twin and then like did a deep dive onto their videos together, sent it to Sarah. And then they both just got really into watching their videos and then sent them to Laura, Laura Kittrell, who's my co-writer, co-showrunner, sent them to us and said like, these girls would be amazing as us. And we were like, mm, they're strangers. They're just like strangers off the street. We're not going to hire them. They're not actors. Um, but maybe they can audition, like, let's have them audition. And so they sent in a, um, they sent in a self tape and there was something and it like, they, they were working at a pizza restaurant. They don't know what a self tape is. So it was like, there, there, it was like a little non-traditional, but something really great about it and something really interesting about them. And so we had them, we told them that we wanted to do um, an in-person audition with them. But I was so scared. Laura and I were both scared. Um, but knowing that I was going to have to direct them, I was just like, how is this going to happen? Like, they were, they're, they don't even understand what acting is. And um, so we got, we've, our, our casting directors, Courtney and Nicole, found an acting coach for them to work with, Nancy Banks, who's amazing. And she... Nancy, before she met with Ray Rayleigh in season, before their in-person audition, she called me and she was just like, what you're asking me for is crazy. I can't turn these people into actors, much less two people into actors. Like, just set your expectations very, very low because this is probably not going to work out. And I was like, great, same. I, that, I'm expecting literally nothing. This is a disaster. It's not going to happen. Let's just, but we got it. We got to just see. So... Nancy worked with them a couple times and then she called me again and she said, I was wrong. These girls are amazing. They're so special. I'm in love with them. They're so wonderful. Um, and then they, you know, they came in and they auditioned and they are just, they, and they were great. And, you know, obviously like they still, they were still like rough around the edges and still figuring it out, but we had time. And so we hired them and they went into acting boot camp and music boot camp and they worked so hard and they showed up when we were supposed to start and they were awesome. And they just got better and better as it went on. And like by the end of it, they were real actors and it was cool. You know, like this show about these, you know, young women becoming artists and we were watching, you know, our lead actresses becoming artists in real time. It was really Cool. You had to like know though going into the process that the twin that casting twins that that was going to cause a real problem. Had you in the oh, back yeah. of your mind thought of of really really bad ideas for what you were going to do if you couldn't find actual twins who worked, especially ones who were queer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were uh, we had so many bad ideas about what to do. Um, you know, we were like, do we just find girls that look enough alike? Do we find siblings who aren't twins? But the trick is also they, you know, like really wanting both of them to be queer. That's a tall order. And then I was like, okay, so what are we going to orphan black this thing? Like we can't afford that, but I guess that's our only real option. Um, but you know, luckily we did. And I mean, truthfully in the back of my mind, I was like, this whole thing is going to fall apart if we don't find these twins. It just isn't going to happen. Because it was just too, you know, it was too important to get it right and do, you know, 
settling for something that was less than the exact right thing would have, you know, there's no reason to do that. And did you always know that the parents were going to need to be sort of more recognizable? Was that always a part of your your strategy? And what did you have to do to make sure that you could get Kyle and uh, and Kobe actors of that level? Yes, that was that was the thinking for sure. Um, and Kobe, I had worked with on my first movie, and uh, when when I started writing this, she was the only person I ever wanted for the part. And, um, and so when we, when we finally got to the place where I could offer it to her, I just, you know, took a shot, even though, you know, she is so busy and, you know, our show was a smaller show and, you know, obviously she's doing like Marvel stuff and, you know, and we've all just agreed that they're very similar worlds, um, but we couldn't quite, you know, (laughs) do that. But she, you know, she really, she, really liked what we were trying to do and we just got very lucky and then same with Kyle he was the only person I ever wanted for that part and yeah I've been such a fan of I had never met him but I had been such a fan of his for such a long time and really only seen him in comedies but just always felt like a sensitivity in his performances even when he's doing something silly that really translated and um and again we just had a meeting with him and he was into it you know, he, 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 he's of this, he's like, we're the same age. And so, he, and he was a big music fan. And so I think, you know, that, you know, going back to the nineties and revisiting the, that world was really appealing to him. So I, I love that in the pilot, you begin the pilot with Tegan and Sarah having a fight so that Sarah has a shiner and Tegan wouldn't. <laughs> and that's, and that's the coding that you have at least for a little while. And I yeah. liked it so much that I was kind of wondering if that was something you were going to find a way to do in every single episode have, I don't know, Tegan wearing blue face paint and Sarah not or something. <laughs> what was the strategy? Yeah, Tegan joins Blue Man Group for an exactly. episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, uh, what was the strategy there? And when were you confident that you had sufficiently established the two of them as individual characters that you wouldn't need signposts like that? Well, it, I mean, yes, that was starting the, the episode with the, with them fighting that results in Sarah's black eye was intentional. Um, and knowing that she would have it for the first couple of episodes, I thought, you know, I thought that by then it, it would feel clear, you know, and especially because, and I would and that paired with the way that we were filming the different POVs, I felt like by by then, like the audience will be able to feel that when we're in someone's POV, like if we're doing our jobs right, the audience will be able to feel when we are in Tegan's POV and it will feel different the, the way it, it'll feel different than even if we're seeing Sarah in the same scene because of the way it's being filmed, you can tell that we're still grounded in with Tegan, you know, so yeah, that was the thinking behind that. You know, in in terms of the overall process, how active and present were Tegan and Sarah for, you know, whether it was the script writing or production? I mean, obviously they were involved in, in casting, but, you know, how much of a say did they did they really have in terms of how deep you went with what was in the memoir versus what they didn't want to see reflected on on, on television? Before, before I even started... I sat down with them and we went through what they felt okay about having in the show and what they didn't. Um, And, you know, we, 
we were in development for a couple of years. So like that even changed. There were some things that they were like, absolutely not. Don't put this in that later. They were like, we do want you to put it in, you know? So that, that definitely changed, but also Laura and I, with each, um, with each outline we would send to them and run it by them and be like, are you okay with this? Is there anything you want us to take out? You know, the, and then same with the scripts, they really, you know, there was nothing that went on screen that they didn't know about, you know, so they were able to really have a say in the way we were telling their story. And and what about uh, in terms of the music, which is obviously so important on a show like this, um, what doors were they able to open in terms of music rights and, and, so, and so forth? Well, Smashing Pumpkins was was the a very influential band for Sarah and Nirvana was a very influential band for Tegan. And those are both, you know, bands that are, you know, very big and expensive. And but we really needed to have them in order to tell their story. So they, you know, Tegan and Sarah were very helpful um, with uh, those securing those bands and making sure we could have those songs. But our music supervisor also worked very closely with them and is amazing, too. And it was really um what was your thought process on how to depict the evolution of their music? You don't want to obviously have them sit down at episode six, instantly write an immediately recognizable Tegan and Sarah song and go, ha, now they're Tegan and Sarah, you know, it's all done. But also at the same time, you don't want to have them be so awful that we don't want to ever hear them do music on the show again. So how do you find that balance? I mean, it was really important to have them to really like flesh them out as characters before they even touched the guitar because it didn't you know like because because that becomes the like the bridge back to each other we needed to understand why they that that they were apart and why they were apart in order to have that impact we always knew that we wanted them to be playing the songs that they wrote in in when they were in high school sort of like in the the chronological order of when things were written so that you know you could it would it would evolve organically so it wasn't like they're you know coming in writing so jealous in the beginning like we really wanted to stay true to um how it happened you know and um and for this first for this this first season you know we had we had really in season record everything and they did you know they did an amazing job but we also um you know, there were some things in post that we were able to do, too, of just, you know, kind of building on what was there to make it feel like it, like it was evolving. Yeah, it was it was it was a lot of, a lot of meetings and a lot of different conversations about how do we start out with, you know, go from Tegan to, didn't go to school today to, you know, some of their more complicated songs and just making sure it I mean, those songs are also so good. They're all so catchy. They would be in all of our heads for weeks while we were filming. It was like everyone had a, a teen and, and Sarah song in their head every single day, all day long. That doesn't sound like a bad problem. <laughs> no, like it was not. Yeah. It was really like, and it was, it's just really, it's just really such a testament to Tegan and Sarah and how they were so gifted right from the beginning because their first songs, you're just, you know, singing them all day long. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my larger question, you know, we talk, you know, as, as an industry podcast, we talk a lot about Freevee and and its transformation from IMDb TV, et cetera. But um, considering that Freevee is an ad supported platform where there's certain things that, that certain limitations in terms of content that you were that you had to contend with as well for this. 
Yes. Yeah. There were certain things like, you know, language. You could we couldn't say the F word. Um, and ways that we couldn't refer to drugs in certain ways. Like we couldn't call acid acid. You know, there were just certain things like that that but it was, you know, like our show was never gonna be like hypersexual or like super violent. Like it was really, you know, there is a real um intimacy and innocence to the show that I think, you know, we weren't super limited in in ways that felt like they were negatively impacting the story. And and what do you tell friends or family or even actresses, et cetera, who are were part of this whole process when they ask what the hell freebie is? <laughs> um I I say it's on it's on Amazon. It's a channel on Amazon, or you can also download it as its own app. That's a very good answer. It's just an <laughs> app. I mean, it's just an app. I mean, we've been using apps for years now. Yeah, of course. Um, it's just the, the term freebie. Like, what's the immediate reaction when you're like, "Oh, we're on freebie"? It's like, I mean, I think I think people just accept it. Everything has, you know. I feel like all those apps have names like that. That we're just like, okay, so this is the thing that we're doing now. Sure. Yeah. I this mean, it's, app, it's, why not? it's better than Quibi, I guess. RIP. <laughs> <laughs> now we're just going to mourn Quibi for the rest of this podcast. I'm, I'm sorry, Dan, it. you're pronouncing it wrong. It's called what? Uh, Quibi is what I've insisted there on calling it because it's quick bites. Oh. So it's, it's. Oh, yeah. That's what it should have been. And I feel like it would have been a wild success if they just pronounced it correctly yeah. and they just didn't. So. And they didn't <laughs> never called you? They really. They've <laughs> never. Not once. But. Oh, well. I want to wait. I want to go back, though, quickly to the acid thing because you also do have characters discussing mushrooms and they just say we're having mushrooms what is the i'm where's the line there <laughs> well in that in like that scene for example they're just like joking around about it the mom is saying that she it's something she had done at a certain point she's joking around and then oh maybe you can get them for me like that's all jokey jokey they're not really doing it i think if we had teenagers who were actively consuming mushrooms it would have been a different conversation Huh. Okay, I can i can buy that that's a <laughs> that that's an answer i i want to go back this this is sort of it's partially what you were saying about sort of going for a slightly younger demo and maybe that, you know, reasons why you can't say fuck or whatever. But also going back to the nostalgia porn or the possibility there. From your perspective, as you were doing this, were you able to make a distinction in your head between the show you were making for the people who were alive in 1995 and who, you know, discovered Tegan and Sarah for the first time then versus the people who are 15 and 16 now was, did that feel like you were going for two different audiences or all the same? I mean, it was all the same really. Like, and by the way, like the, the language stuff or the drug stuff was really not because of the, de like the demo. It was just the, the rules of no, it, I mean, we, it's, it's almost like we had to follow somewhat like similar rules to like network TV, you know, where you can't, you just can't do certain things. Like you just can't say, you just, there's, just can't do it, you know, for, and I don't know why I don't make the rules. Um, but yeah, I mean, we were really just telling, we wanted to tell like the most, you know, the most authentic version of the story that we could at all times and not really trying to go to, for a, to have a certain impact on a certain person. It was really just being as honest as we could to the story. And I'm curious, given that this was, as you've said, this was, you're roughly the same age. And so were there any points at which you were sneaking in little bits of your childhood as well? Little bits of, of oh, your memoir? Sure. 
What kind of things did you do that on? I feel like it's more in the direction and the, the visuals and the, you know, wardrobe and, um, the, the music that's not, you know, any music that was not called out in the book, you know, being able to sneak in the songs that I would like sit in my bedroom and listen to while I was like thinking about a girl that I liked, you know, and getting to, you know, do that. Um, but story things, I would have to look at the script. I would have to go watch the episodes. What were yeah, those? What were those songs? What were those musical touchstones that are your touchstones? Mm-hmm. I mean, Elastica was a really big band for me. Um, also, there's this a band called Eve's Plum, and their song called Venus Meets Pluto. And I feel like nobody has ever heard of this band. And I've I'm heard of like, this I can't band. be the only. No, I love that right. band. Yeah, and that song, I just would like sit and like have these like romantic fantasies too and then getting to put it in a scene with tegan and maya just felt like the perfect thing for it but even like you know bringing in like liz fair and the amps and just i don't know just really getting to put in all those songs that i grew up loving and um you know i do want to go back and touch a little bit more on your uh, your other credits you know we had natasha leone on the podcast in april fun and uh, obviously talked with her about the legacy of, but I'm a cheerleader. Part you know, of it. For you, <laughs> but you know, for you, do you think a movie would like that would get made today? Oh, definitely. I definitely think it would. Does she? What does she say? Yeah, I mean, she said the same. But you know, but it, it, but it's also like my larger question is the legacy of, of that movie. How do you see the legacy of it today? You know, obviously, I'm sure you've heard from people over the years, like myself, gushing about how important it was to them you know, as part of their coming out process or the representation of seeing a version of themselves on screen or the, or that the way that they're feeling or the struggles they're experiencing are universal. But um, th- those themes today, I mean, you know, what do you hear from, from people about the, about the movie's legacy and people discovering it now through, you know, Muna's Silk Chiffon video and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's been really remarkable seeing what that movie has become, you know, because it was sort of, you know, it was so underground and now it almost feels like mainstream how many kids are discovering it now and how it still seems like it's having the same kind of impact that it's like helping people feel seen, feel represented, even though, you know, obviously in 2022, we have so much more language and there is more openness, you know, it doesn't change the fact uh, that, you know, coming out and discovering your sexuality is a largely internal experience before you decide to come out, you know, and there are so many questions and so many things you wonder because, you know, most people are sort of like assigned heterosexual at birth. And then you have to be like, you know, kind of have to get out from under that if that's not how you identify, you know. And so I think it is, you know, the the impact it's having, you know, the same influence on people that it did or impact that it did when it, you know, when we made it 25 years ago. Yeah. And whenever I think about it now, I always think that it would make such a great TV show for, Mm -hmm. for today's generation, because there's so much more that you could do with that, especially considering the, the, you know, the state of visibility that we have right now and some of the, of the anti-gay laws that are Mm -hmm. increasingly popping up across the country. But um, is that ever something that would be of interest to you or even revisiting that as a feature for, for a new generation? I mean, I'm so old now that I don't know if I, they would want me to be in it. Um, no, I mean, but you're now obviously a, a writer, producer, director, 
with considerable clout in the industry versus at the time when, as you know, when, when you were saying you wouldn't take roles that because you were closeted. I mean, I would, I, I really think that there is probably more of that story to tell and, a, you know, a way to bring it into 2022. But I think, you know, Jamie would be ha- have to be, I think Jamie should be the one who's doing that and I would be a part of it in whatever way she wanted me to do. Yeah. You know, and I do want to, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't go back and touch on Happiest Season, which was such a delight um, and is a, a holiday staple in our household. But, you know, you said, you know, many times that you'd be open to doing a sequel. Is there any movement there? Um, not right now. No. Sorry. Um, in your mind, what are, what would Abby and Harper be, be up to uh, in 2022? And perhaps more importantly, what's Riley doing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Riley is just breaking hearts all over town. Uh, but I think, I mean, I don't know. I, I imagine they're probably, they should probably, their relationship should probably continue to evolve. I don't know. I don't know. You never know when a project is going to strike a chord. And that one so clearly did. And people got really, really invested a little bit like Leslie in the different romantic permutations oh, yeah. and, and character Oh, what do you choices. mean? Did they? Did they? <laughs> <laughs> huh, I didn't realize. <coughs> yeah. Team Riley. <laughs> how gratifying, oh, how gratifying was that? And how surprising was it for you that people as immediately as they did hooked yeah. on to things? I mean, it was intense, man. It was <laughs> really, I had never experienced anything like that before. It was really, um, really wild. Uh, but it was cool. I mean, people were so engaged in a way. And I guess that's, you know, some people were mad. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it, it, it's amazing to make something that makes people feel so passionately about it, you know, even even if they are a team Riley. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm always curious about this and and the answer may just be but I'm a cheerleader, but it could be any other option when a performer has a lot of very recognizable roles over a long stretch of time. When people approach you and they're fans of something, at this point, what is the first thing that they mention and how has that changed over the years? But I'm a cheerleader is definitely a big one. The faculty might be the biggest one. People love the faculty. Uh, like, And it is like a, the widest range of people, too. Um, and then... Uh, I mean, since I did Veep, then it became Veep. <laughs> and then that one was the, that's a big one now. Do people who are fans of the different things approach you in clearly different ways? Are the Veep fans more obviously profane than fans of other shows? <laughs> are the Yeah, they just come up cussing at me. <laughs> um, are the But I'm a Cheerleader fans, are they more clearly grateful for the impact that it had? Like, can you tell when someone approaches you what they're going to tell you they love? Yes, I can. I can, yeah. But then every so often you get a curveball and somebody's like, I loved you on Ghosts of Mars. And you're like, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not the one I thought you were going to say. Well, uh, we do always like to wrap these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying? Barbarian is a movie that I saw recently that I absolutely loved. But does it have to be TV? It certainly can be, but it doesn't need to be. Um, I loved Barbarian. I just started watching The Staircase, which I really liked. I started watching it on a plane the other day. I thought it was great. Um, 
What else have I been watching? Survivor always. I re- I'm really liking The Patient. I feel like there are things, because it's like scary season right now that I'm trying to watch more scary things. But you're also conspicuously avoiding my so-called life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I still can't get over that. Maybe I'll watch my so-called life. Maybe that's what I should do. It's truly one of great, one of television's great one and dones. <laughs> Wait, they only had one season? Yeah. Only one. It was, yeah, it was insane. And, so and obviously, you know, the, that character, Wilson Cruz's character, Ricky, on that, it was so important to, to television yeah. and to vis- visibility. And yeah, that, that show in general, it's just, it's truly a gem. So I'm I'll watch it. I'm going to watch it. There you go. We have we, we have a verbal commitment. We'll check in <laughs> with you. We'll check in with you for your next project. Thank okay, you so much, Clea. Good. Thank I really you. Really I really had fun us. talking to you guys. Thank you so much. The first four episodes of High School premiere Friday, October 14th on Freebie. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Uh, among this week's new launches, you've got Shantaram on Apple TV+. Plus. High School, you just heard our fantastic interview with Clea Duvall on Freebie. Plus, you've got new seasons of Somebody Feed Phil on Netflix, Documentary Now on IFC. On IFC. And then elsewhere, you've got The Vow Part 2 and Mama's Boy and Year One, A Political Odyssey, all HBO documentaries. And then, of course, American Horror Story, New York City on FX. So, Dan what you got for us this week. And then also there's a, a bonus mailbag question here. We have a, a leftover mailbag question here from Jonathan, who is eager to hear your thoughts on Midnight Club. Dan, lots to pick from. There are there are many things to pick from. Uh, let's, let's start quickly with Midnight Club. Um, I've liked all of the Mike Flanagan October drops with various gradations of liking. Um, and I, I stopped watching Midnight Club after after four episodes, uh, not necessarily because I was hating it. I definitely was not hating it, uh, but because I, I just wasn't interested enough in the story within a story structure of it all. And, it, and it's so very dependent on that structure. And so either you're fully engaged and you're like, okay, these characters who I half know, I'm perfectly happy to, to watch slash listen to them tell stories that may or may not actually be scary and that may or may not continue to be relevant. So I, I liked the actors. I liked the ambiance. I think Mike Flanagan does obviously a great job with making haunted house stories. And so this is a haunted house for teens who have terminal diseases and uh and so it's kind of red band society meets flatliners anyway i definitely didn't hate it on the other hand i definitely was less engaged and because our colleague angie reviewed it i was able to move on to other things angie really liked it so uh at some point i may i may keep going because like i said i've been a, a fan of the flanagan series and so um yeah i'm not a not not tearing it apart by any degree, but also not hugely enthusiastic. Uh, like I said, I've so far watched exactly 45 minutes of, of The Watcher, and it made me laugh, and I think it was supposed to at times. I've yet to get to the part where it's going to get scary and disturbing, and we'll see if that pays off. Who knows? Uh, I want to say a couple quick words about Somebody Feed Phil, which returns for the God only knows how many at season on on Netflix. Uh, the new season features episodes in, among other places, uh, Croatia 
and also Austin, Texas. And I want to particularly shout out the Austin, Texas episode, uh, which features friends of the podcast, uh, Caitlin and Emily, in very, very key roles. They are, of course, the founders of the ATX TV Festival, one of our favorite things in the world. And on the Austin episode, they go out for barbecue with Phil. And uh, they are both very charming and do a very good job of promoting their wonderful festival. So strongly recommend. Which you can hear more about the ATX Festival back from our one and only episode that we filmed live, that we recorded live at the ATX Festival back June 7th, 2019 in episode 25. We were so young, Dan. We, we were, and and not just was that a, a different time for our world, but basically we were a completely different podcast at that point. Uh, so yeah, that was before we had started doing showrunner interviews. Uh, I believe our, our episodes were as a rule coming in at under 45 minutes. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a totally different podcast back then. Uh, so yes, that is Somebody Feed Pill on Netflix. It's always a great show. I love Somebody Feed Phil. You should watch it. Uh, speaking of shows that I always enjoy, I, for no particular reason other than it kept amusing me, I watched six episodes of the new season of Documentary Now yesterday. Uh, partially, it was because I was watching that on my laptop while I was watching the baseball game on my TV. Uh, but yeah, I was also just kept watching it because it's just really such a good show and such a an unlikely show to exist it is it continues to be this magnificently nerdy nerdy show that is for an audience out there that is going to be tickled by a 25 minute parody takeoff homage to the films of Agnes Varda. I mean, I love the fact that there is a, an audience out there for that even if it's only in the tens of thousands. And the the audience should be happy with these new episodes. Like I said, I've I watched six of them yesterday, which includes the two parter, which uh, the two part premiere, which stars Alexander Sarsgaard and is a takeoff on Burden of Dreams, the uh, the documentary about Werner Herzog and Klaus Kinski, and it is. <laughs> At times, it is utterly insane, and I appreciate that. Um, one thing I appreciate about the show is that it pays as much loving respect to documentaries that are crappy as to documentaries that are fantastic. And so, you know, they can they can do an Agnes Varda episode, and that is the best of the six I've seen without any question. But they also have a, a very, very, very silly episode uh, called The Monkey Grifter, which is based off of My Octopus Teacher. And I happen to think My Octopus Teacher is just a horrible documentary. Uh, it is an Oscar winner, so Netflix is perfectly happy, and Netflix gives zero fucks about whether or not I respect My Octopus Teacher. Uh, but my monkey grifter is simultaneously loving and savage to the conventions of my octopus teacher. I appreciated that. Uh, so yeah, big, big old fan of documentary. Now it returns uh, next week. So uh, let's go with the positive first before we go to the mixed. Uh, you just heard our interview with Clea Duval, who is the creator of high school and uh, so many hats and, uh, or as they call them, uh, on the show, Tooks, because it's all very Canadian. Uh, but um, so, I, you know, I, I am aware of Tegan and Sarah, but I am not a huge Tegan and Sarah fan. And so I come in with no particular 
deep investment in this world. Uh, Leslie is making a heart sign with her fingers as if to suggest that she is a fan. Uh, but you you really don't need to be. Um, I, I can, you know, if you just listen to the interview, I brought up Freaks and Geeks, and I do think that there are shades of Freaks and Geeks here. But th then Clea brought up uh, My So-Called Life, which I think is a, probably a much more correct comparison. I, I think probably Freaks and Geeks implies more humor than this really is going for. It's it's much more an earnest, emotional, sometimes funny half-hour drama just about two teenage girls finding themselves. And it's extremely sensitively made. Uh, I, Clea talked about finding the lead actors for this. And to me, that is the most remarkable thing of this, because this show can't exist if you can't find two twins who can play the part. And then you get... Uh, but even... It, like, like that's sort of a thing that you want the show to have because you want the authenticity and you like that to be a part of what you were looking for. I don't know necessarily that random viewer X, Y, or Z is going to know. Many people will be appreciative of that. But yeah, uh, Season and uh, and Rayleigh Gilliland are... They're, they're just both great. And the the cast around them is terrific. The young actors are all extremely authentic. And then you have Kobe Smulders and Kyle Bornheimer, who are in great roles as well. And I, I just found myself just liking being a part of this world, liking dropping into mid-90s Calgary, which is simultaneously a location that is foreign, but also a time frame that for me is extremely relatable. And so the music is, a lot of it is is the music that I grew up in. And so so that's great. It's, it's just really likable. And uh, so you heard Clea talking about how you watch a show on freebie. And it's not that complicated. It really is. It, you can just either get an app or whatever, or go through your prime video thing and it'll be in the with commercials section. Uh, but yes, I, I really like high school and uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it is a nifty little show and it's made, it's made with impressive care. So that, and then there's, Shantaram or Shantaram or however we want to pronounce it. I don't know. Uh, they, they have not yet gotten to the point where anyone says the name out loud. Um, it is, of course, based on the gigantic and gigantic bestseller, uh, the novel by Gregory David Roberts, uh, sort of semi-loosely initially autobiographical. It's about a a man who screws up his life. He's an Australian. He he was a philosophy college student and an aspiring paramedic. And he gets involved with drugs. He gets involved with bank robbery. He's associated with, but does not commit, a homicide. And so he's in jail in Australia. Turns out being in jail in Australia, not so good. He escapes from jail, goes to India, and finds himself in a complicated world. So there's the autobiographical stuff, but, but it's also such a hodgepodge of basically doorstop novel tropes. So large portions of it are basically somebody cribbing notes from Les Miserables, the novel. Uh, 
I'm <laughs> ahead of the FX series premiere uh, at some time in the next year. Uh, I'm currently finishing off reading Shogun, and the plot of Shantaram is almost identical to the plot of uh, Shogun. It's it's remarkable, but it's also very similar to Tokyo Vice. It's anywhere you have a white guy popping up in a foreign country, learning about himself while maybe learning a little about the culture he's in. Um, they're all very similar. Uh, Charlie Hunnam stars. Charlie Hunnam is good at many things as an actor. I do not think that Charlie Hunnam is good with accents as an actor. And here he plays an Australian who throughout the series is being told by everybody that he uh, does accents really well, which is a little bit funny. But as I said in my review, partially I think it actually works because the entire point is that this version of uh, of pre-Mumbai Bombay is kind of presented as a melting pot where people come to disappear or to reinvent themselves or for second chances. And so there are a lot of people here who who you aren't necessarily sure where they're really supposed to be from, what their nationality is, what their accents are. And so if you don't necessarily know what Charlie Hunnam is doing accent-wise, it kind of fits in, even if he's maybe the only character in here who is actually definitively from somewhere else. Like, like I know exactly where he's supposed to be from he just doesn't sound like he is also i think it's a i think it's a good performance otherwise uh the series was shot somewhat largely in india not actually shot in mumbai uh but they i guess figured it was enough to shoot in india in general um i will let people with more sense of I don't know, the lighting and backdrop and whatnot of, of India tell me if it looks authentic or not. It, but to my mind, it looks close enough to authentic, given that the whole story kind of reeks of inauthenticity. Uh, but they, they try they try getting l the language right. They try getting some of the culture right. I think there are some very, very good supporting performances. I think that Alexander Siddig, who plays a smooth-talking mobster slash gangster who also isn't really from India, but we don't know exactly where he is from. Uh, I think he's superior. Uh, I think Antonio Desplat, who is Alexander, the Oscar-winning um, composer's daughter, I think she's very good. I think she will get work out of this. Uh, Electra Kil uh, Kilby, who plays a junkie and prostitute who causes lots of trouble, either intentionally or unintentionally. I think she's super. She she kind of looks like January Jones by way of Margot Robbie, and she has really strong screen presence, and I am fairly sure we will see her working again. I think she has a character who is very badly written, and I think the fact that the character isn't a total disaster is a tribute to her performance. Uh, you have Vincent Perez, who plays a mysterious man named Didier, who knows how to get things for people. I think he's very good. Um, some of the, some of the roles actually are cast with Indian actors, and I think that some of them are very good. Largely, the show's focus is on the expats in India. Um, mostly, there's just so much of it, and it. You know, it's a 900-page book, and they tried over the years to to boil it down to a two-hour movie, and I can completely understand why that didn't work. This doesn't really work either structurally. The first season is 12 hour-long episodes. I've seen all 12. 
there are so many extraneous subplots and subplots that just aren't properly developed and it gets the story only partially along the way. So to me, it comes down to whether there are more or less things that you're enjoying versus things that are infuriating you. And I think it's going to be probably, probably for me, it was roughly 50, 50 between aspects of the story that I was interested in and following with, genuine curiosity and engagement versus things where I was like, why are we spending time with these characters or on this subplot? So it's, it's tough. I, I think probably some people who have been waiting for the material will be happy to finally have an adaptation out there. I think probably people with no connection to it will either be taxed by the way the story is told, or again, will find that their appreciation is closer to 60 or 70% that they were liking and they'll like the series. It, it's the kind of thing that feels like it could have been, I don't know, it could have been considered a masterpiece on television in 1985 and now there are better ways of doing similar adaptations and similar stories. So as a recap, um, I love documentary now on IFC, but if you're a documentary fan in the target audience, you almost certainly already know that. Um, I love Somebody Feed Phil on Netflix, but if you're a food fan, you probably already watch it and enjoy it. Uh, I am a big fan of High School. I think it is a, a very solid show, and for some people, it will be a reason to figure out how to use Freebie. And uh, sorry, uh, you, you've gone all of these mentions of Freebie, Leslie, and you haven't... Um, said its name once would you like to do it just once now not being respectful we had a guest on <laughs> yeah but you don't need to be respectful of me freebie there there it doesn't Excellent. sound it doesn't sound the same with my voice all jacked up <laughs> fair enough and then uh shantaram or shantaram on apple tv plus it's got interesting aspects to it it is it is sometimes very well produced and sometimes very windingly and unwieldingly told as a story. So, you know, you'll you'll know if you if you watch the first episode and you're entirely unengaged, I'm not going to tell you you're suddenly going to become more engaged, uh, but some people will be entertained on it. I was decidedly mixed. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporters. Now see this newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review-y thing. Those suckers do pop up everywhere, and they help spread the word of mouth. So, you know, take a couple seconds. We'd appreciate it. Uh, you can always come say hi to us on Twitter. Let us know what is or isn't working. We like the feedback, but if you have questions for future mailbag segments, and we got some good ones this week, and we have a couple of good ones left over for future weeks, but seriously, questions, email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch 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 -chum. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, only prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.